All right. This morning we're going to be uh, continuing our study through the book of Matthew. Uh, Last week we covered verses uh, 14 through 32 of chapter 12. And today we're going to look to finish off the chapter, uh, Matthew chapter 12. And so if you have your Bibles with you, you can uh, make your way there, uh, whether that be uh, clicking the home button and and swiping a couple apps through or uh, flipping through some pages. Uh, Make your way there to Matthew chapter 12. Last Sunday we saw... Uh, how the Holy Spirit was mounting overwhelming evidence that was pointing to only one uh, very clear conclusion, that Jesus Christ indeed was the Messiah sent by the Father and empowered by the Holy Spirit. You'll recall, if, if you were with us last week, that we looked at how ridiculous and crazy that the Pharisees claim was that that Jesus was empowered to do the miracles he did uh, by Satan that he was empowered by Satan to cast out Satan and and Jesus easily refuted their claim and he boldly declared that there is no neutral ground when it comes to Jesus Christ you're either with him or against him and, and we lastly noted that the Pharisees were in danger of committing the unpardonable sin of blasphemy of the Holy Spirit by denying the Spirit's testimony of Jesus Christ. Okay? Today's portion is going to continue in this line of thought regarding the evidence that the Spirit of God is mounted up and how it really is more than enough evidence to demand a verdict. And so with that, we're going to pick up in verse 33 of chapter 12. Okay? I'd like to ask you just to rise as we read from God's Word, to honor God's Word, as we read from Matthew chapter 12, verse 33. I'm going to read from verses 33 through 36. We're going to get through the end of the chapter, though. So, Or actually, through 37. 33 through 37. Okay? Matthew chapter 12, it says this. Jesus is speaking. He says, Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or else make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For a tree is known by its fruit. Brood of vipers, how can you, being evil, speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. A good man, out of the good treasure of his heart, brings forth good things. And an evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth evil things. But I say to you that for every idle word men may speak, they will give account of it in the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would be with us as we continue to worship you through uh, the application and the study of your word. Lord, I pray that you'd be with uh, myself uh, as we go through, that I'd be able to clearly present uh, the heart and intent of your word. Uh, Lord, I pray that you'd be with each and every one of us, that we would be able to hear what your spirit wants to say this morning. Lord, as uh, your spirit was speaking back uh, then and and testifying of Christ and and just mounting up up evidence for the Pharisees, Lord, uh, I pray that we would not be like the Pharisees, but we'd be able to see the evidence, that we'd be able to glean from your word and make application to our own lives. And so, Lord, we pray your leading and guiding. And Lord, we do come. I, I know I come. I hope everyone here comes with an expectation that you're going to speak to us today as we gathered to hear from you. And so, Father, lead our time, we ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You guys may have a seat. In verses 33 through 35, Jesus is continuing his words towards the Pharisees that uh, he spoke in answer to their illogical and ridiculous claim that he was empowered not by God, but that he was empowered by Satan. And Jesus brings up an, an often repeated theme of, of trees and their fruit. 
Okay? Uh, this is actually the third time that we've come across such imagery in our study of the book of Matthew. First, we saw uh, John the Baptist. He uh, referenced trees and their fruit when he demanded of the Pharisees to bear fruits worthy of repentance. And he informed them that every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. The second time we saw this uh, imagery of of trees and their fruit was when we were going through Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew uh, chapter 7, when speaking of false prophets, Jesus declared, You will know them by their fruits. Later on he says, Every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Therefore, verse 20 says, By their fruits you will know them. And here in our portion is the the third mention of trees and their fruit from the book of Matthew. And and Jesus is telling the people here to judge for themselves whether or not the tree is good or the tree is bad. The word make, where it says make the tree good and its fruit good, that word make means to suppose or to judge or to assume. And so Jesus is saying, judge for yourselves. Look at the fruit and make a decision. Remember, this is coming right off the heels of him in verse 30 saying that you're either with me or against me. And so now he's looking and saying, look at the evidence. Look at the fruit and make a decision for yourselves. Jesus is pointing out the fact that the evidence portrayed here as fruit is abundant and points to the true nature of the individual, which is portrayed here as the tree. Jesus calls out the Pharisees with a, with a title that they've actually been referred to previously by John the Baptist. In Matthew chapter uh, 3, verse 7, he says, uh, John the Baptist says this, When he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he, uh, referring to John the Baptist, said to them, Brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? A brood of vipers, it describes the offspring of, of snakes. And the brood is, just means children of or uh, descendants of. And so a brood of vipers is the offspring of snakes. Snakes were often, throughout scriptures, represented uh, of evil and wicked people. Okay? We know that uh, in Genesis... Uh, uh, the devil took the form of a, of a serpent. Okay? And we read through uh, Psalms and Proverbs about uh, the snake uh, and the serpents and, and the asp. In Psalm 140, verse 3, uh, the psalmist speaks of how the poison of asps is under their lips. And, and with that imagery, I think Jesus, with that imagery in mind, he speaks and identifies these Pharisees as brood of vipers. The idea that snakes and their poison is coming from under their lips. Because he says it's, it's aptly applied here to the Pharisees and their words that they speak from their lips. And so we see this connection of, of the poison coming from the mouth of a viper and, and the poison that comes from the lips of these Pharisees. Jesus, he shares an important truth here in the second half of verse 34. He says, for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And and I believe that that this truth is connected to what Jesus was saying previously regarding the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. The blasphemy of the Holy Spirit spoken of in verses 31 and 32, and we covered last week, says that whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him. And, And the idea of speaking against the Spirit is tied to the truth of verse 34. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. As one speaks against the Holy Spirit is only evidence of what is going on in that person's heart. That in their heart, they have rejected the Spirit. And in their heart, they have hardened themselves against the testimony of the Spirit. And so really, the words that they speak are just evidence of the condition of their heart. So we see just that further evidence. As we, I don't want to go back to the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Just further evidence, though, that the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit isn't only tied to just the words we say, okay, but it's tied to the condition of our hearts as well. 
That the words we speak against the Holy Spirit, they're mere evidence of our rejection of the Holy Spirit's testimony of Christ. Okay? Looking into what he's talking about now, the words we speak, you know, I want to just bring this up, that they're important. You know, I was really blessed by Walter's exhortation this morning as we were uh, worshiping the Lord. And he was talking about our words. And that uh, we sing that song, Let Our Words uh, Be Few. Okay? Just in reverence of the Lord. The importance, the realization of the words that we speak. And that they wouldn't just be words that we read off of uh, a, a screen or an overhead. Uh, but that they would be words from our heart. Okay? Okay? Verse, uh, excuse me. The words that we speak, they're important because whether we like to agree or not, they often portray an accurate description of the condition of our heart. The words that we speak. Verse, that's what verse 35 is telling us. Okay, verse 35, it's talking about a good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good things, and an evil man out of the evil uh, treasure brings forth evil things. And that, that whatever's in our heart, that's what's going to be brought forth. Okay, scripture it has a few things to say about our hearts, and it's really not that good. Okay. Jeremiah 17, verse 9, tells us about our hearts, that they are deceitful above all things, and they are desperately wicked. Jesus said in Mark chapter 7, that out of the heart of men proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lewdness, and evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. Verse 23 says, All these evil things come from within, and they defile a man. So what hope do you and I have of bringing anything other than wickedness from our hearts? As the Scriptures so clearly say that our hearts are, are wicked, they're deceitful, and out of it just flow so many horrible things. What hope do we have? The only hope that we have is found in Jesus Christ. Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 26, it says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And these words, they were spoken for the nation of Israel, but I believe they're they're aptly applied to us today as well. As we look at the New Testament scriptures, we look at... uh, a scripture like 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, that declares, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Okay? Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. You see, in Christ, we have the opportunity to have our, our deceitful and desperately wicked hearts of stone removed and then replaced with a new heart of flesh. We become a new creation. And all those old things are done away with. And behold, all things are new. But I want to give you this word of caution. Even with our new hearts, as we have accepted Christ into our lives, we have that new heart within us. We still need to be guarded with our words. We need to tame our tongues, as James speaks about. James, you know, the interesting thing about James, he, it, a lot of people reading it, it's like, he's kind of harsh. And, and one of the things I think people don't realize too often is that James is writing to the church. You know, and these words that he shares were written to the church. And he said, speaking to the church, that with our tongue we bless our God and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the similitude of God. And out of the same mouth proceed blessing and cursing. And his recourse or his answer is, My brethren, these things ought not to be so. Some of us, you know, even though that we are a new creation in Christ, we're still having difficulties taming our tongue. And and it ought not to be so amongst us. It ought not to be so. You know, and I've been been ministering alongside military families uh, for some time now. I spent 10 years in Okinawa, and now the Lord has placed us here in Iwakuni. And I believe that this is an area that a lot of guys and gals struggle with, is this taming of the tongue. And the words that come out of their la- out of their mouths, you know, and, and some try and, and write it off like it's no big deal, okay, and that it's that's part of the military culture. But it, c- Scripture says it is a big deal, okay. 
You represent Christ. And Christ would not have you to pronounce blessing and cursing out of the same mouth. And so we need to be guarded with our tongues. We need to tame our tongues. We can't just let it be an excuse. Well, it's just part of the culture. And, and, uh, you know, it's just everyone does it and everyone says it. You know what? It ought not to be so. We need to be careful and guard our hearts and guard our mouths. How do we combat it? How do, we, how do we tame the tongue? I believe it has a lot to do with our diet. Okay? What kind of words are we allowing ourselves to take in? Okay, the, the music that we listen to, the people that we hang out with, uh, the TV shows that we watch. What, what kind of language are we taking in our lives? Colossians chapter 3, verse 16 admonishes us to let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in wisdom. You know, the psalmist, I believe he understood the importance of taking in God's word as well when he penned Psalm 119, verse 11. It says, Your word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. You know, I believe that the, the best way, uh, one of, if not the best way, Uh, to tame our tongue is to fill our hearts with God's Word. As we let the Word of Christ dwell in us richly, as we take in the Word of God, we we come to Sunday morning's worship and we sing praises and and, uh, we listen to the Word being expounded upon and we go uh, on the radio and there's podcasts and all sorts of things. We take in God's Word. We take it in for ourselves in our daily reading and devotions. We take in the Word of God. That's how we're able to, to fill our lives with the Word of God and to tame our tongue. It's, it's a matter of diet. I know it's pretty simple, but you know, I was, used to talk to the kids when I taught middle school, and I said, garbage in, garbage out. You know, it's, it's real simple. You know, but if we're taking in good, healthy words, then, then that's what's going to be coming out. So it's our diet, guys. We need to be careful. Uh, we need to fill our hearts with God's Word. Then our speech can be filled with love, and it can be seasoned with grace, and it can be edifying and encouraging towards one another as the Scriptures exhort us. Verse 36 and 37 says, But I say to you that for every idle word men may speak, they will give account of it in the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Verse 36 and 37 again echo the importance of the words that we speak. We will give an account for every idle word we speak. That that word idle. Uh, idle word. It, it means insincere language of a person who speaks one thing and means another. Okay? And so even the words that we speak and we really don't mean, we'll still have to answer for them. And the reason that, that it's so is because our words, they're, they're really just an indicator of where our hearts are at. When we give account for our words, we realize that in our heart, it's really our hearts that are being examined. We give an account for our words because it's really evidence of what's in our heart. And so our heart is examined. The phrase to give account means not simply to render a mere account. Not just saying, okay, I said all these words, da 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 okay? But it means that um, to suffer the consequences of uh, right, unrighteousness, that we would suffer by that uh, list. Verse 37 tells us that we will be justified or condemned based upon our words. Uh, the word justified, I, I like that word. I looked it up. It means to be absolved or acquitted, to be cleared from any charge or imputation. Imputation, whatever. Whatever, imputation, is that right? I got blank stares out here. Okay, I'll, I'll move on. Okay, but the idea of being acquitted. Okay, you're in a court or a trial, you're acquitted. You're, you're uh, absolved of responsibility. Okay, it doesn't mean that we are innocent at all. Okay, I hope you guys realize that. It's not as if we're innocent, okay? But that we are acquitted, that we're cleared from any charges, okay? It it just means that we won't have to pay the punishment for our guiltiness. It's not a matter of whether or not we're guilty. We are guilty, okay? Because we've all said some things that we wish we could grab back and, and, and not have said, okay? We're all guilty, okay? But some of us will not have to pay the punishment for our guiltiness. And, and some of you may ask, well, how would that work out? How does that work out exactly? Okay. I believe the answer is found in Romans chapter 10. 
Romans chapter 10, verse 9 and 10 says that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Romans chapter 10 tells us that when our heart believes, our mouth will confess and we will be saved. We will be saved from the condemnation that we would have received on that day of judgment if it were not for Christ clearing us of all charges. And so for those who are in Christ, we don't have to give, you know, the the account may be there, but we're going to be found not necessarily uh, not guilty, but we're just going to be found cleared of any charges because of what Christ has done, because of the words that we've spoken and we've confessed in Christ, our faith and trust in Him. Those words that we speak, they, as it says in verse 37, they will, we will be justified by them or we will be condemned by them. Justified by them if we call upon the name of Christ. And we'll be justified. That, that idea that we're not held accountable to it. But we'll be condemned if we don't have that with us. Okay, we're going to have to give an account for that. If we don't have Christ, we're going to have to give an account for those words. Verse 38, continuing, he says, Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered, saying, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. (laughs) Here we see the scribes and Pharisees asking for a sign. And in essence, they were asking for more proof. Okay? Uh, we want more evidence. Show us a sign. And, and we've been talking about Matthew chapter 12, how the Holy Spirit has been mounting uh, mountains of, of evidence, more and more evidence, that proof, and, and yet they have the nerve to come and say, show us a sign. It's, it's like they're saying, we want more evidence. We need more evidence. Um, the evidence that was before them was already overwhelming. And, and yet, they still asked for a sign. They would not believe the truth that was so plain before them, and so they continually asked, give us another sign, give us another sign. They would not respond to the evidence that was before them. You know, some people today are just like that as well. They want God to show them a sign, or they want God to, to perform a miracle before they will believe. They, they won't believe what, uh, without some hard evidence. I need, I need some proof. Okay? I need God to do a miracle or, or to you know, do something incredible. Or give me a sign and then I'll believe. And here's the truth of the matter. And the truth of the matter is that evidence for God is all around us. The evidence for God is, is all around all of those who say, I need a sign. I need a miracle. I need to be shown and proved. And, and God's saying, the evidence is there. You just won't listen to it. You just won't follow it. You just won't investigate and look into the evidence that's before you. Romans chapter 1, verses 18-20 through 20 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth. They suppress the truth in unrighteousness because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. The signs and the the miracles that some ask for, they're right before them. In God's very creation, the signs and miracles that they ask for are there. Why does God not answer the, those types of requests? I, I don't know of very many that have asked for those types of requests and had God answer. Okay? Why does He not answer those requests to see a sign or to see a miracle where someone says, you know, I'll come to the Lord if He, if he proves Himself, if He shows Himself, if He does a miracle, then I'll come... I believe God doesn't answer those really for lots of different reasons, but I'm going to suggest two of them for you today, this morning. One, I believe, as we've already talked about, one is that God has already done the miraculous. And He's already given enough signs to prove Himself. There's already enough evidence. Look at the evidence of His Word. We look at the Scriptures. The, the book that is before you 
is not just some mere book. Okay? The scriptures are filled with prophecy. Things that are spoken of hundreds of years before they ever came to be and they are so specific and so exacting. The details are incredible. Even to, to name future kings that weren't even born that would do certain things for the nation of Israel. To, to talk about Christ and His coming. The prophecy of, of the Bible and, and this book is, in, is incredible. This is enough evidence. The, the Bible. But even more so, look at creation. Look at the beauty and majesty of it all. Even the complexity within creation. You know, it cannot be the result of happen chance. Okay? Our, our bodies, they are intricately designed. They are incredibly designed. You know, it's amazing that we can, we can look at a building or we can look at a painter and say, well, that building had a builder. It's obvious because there's design to it. And we can look at a painting and we can say, that's obvious. There's a painter for that painting. But yet we look at the complexity of the human body and we say, that just happened by chance. Really? Creation itself declares the miracles and the majesty of God. It's more than enough evidence. You know, I think there's another reason I believe that he doesn't answer those that want to see a sign or a, or a miracle, and it's because we're skeptics at heart. Okay? And you want some evidence to know that you're a skeptic? Here's some evidence, okay? Have you ever known someone that's really good at card tricks? Okay? You, you maybe you have some friends, they come to a party and they do some really cool tr- card tricks. If someone pulls off a really good card trick, Right before your eyes, what's usually the first thing you say? We, usually we say, do it again. <laughs> right? Do it again. And we, they'll do it and do it again. Right? And we say, do it again, do it again, do it again. Because we want to be able to explain and be able to understand how the trick happened. How they were able to do what they did. And so we say, do it again. And, and I believe that that would be the truth of, of God answering prayer like that. I think that's what we'd say. If someone said, God, I need you to show me a sign or, or a miracle, and if God indeed did that, he just opened up the clouds and said, Hey, Andre, how you doing? And peeked his head back in. Andre would probably say, Do it again, God. Because <laughs> that's just how we are. Do it again. It isn't, you know, even, you know, Gideon. He's a great example of the do it again, right? You guys know the account of Gideon? Gideon was seeking the Lord and he asked God to show him a sign and he set out a fleece. Okay, basically like a piece of cloth, you know. But he set this fleece out. And he said, God, I want, to know that, I want to know that you're with me. I want you to show me a sign. I want, I want you to make the fleece all wet and make the ground all dry. He wakes up the next day and he wrings out the fleece. And then he says, God, do it again. But this time, I'm going to set the fleece out and I want you to make the fleece dry and make the ground all wet. And sure enough, God did answer uh, Gideon's request. But I, I look at that and I just see the point of it is, is that we are just skeptics. Right? When God does something, we still want to say, do it again. We don't let the evidence be enough. We don't let the miracle be enough. We don't let that sign be enough. We want more evidence. And that's what the Pharisees are doing. These scribes and the Pharisees, they're asking for yet another sign. And they're basically saying, do it again. Do, do another thing. Do, do something else. I mean, how much more does he need to do? The people, the lay people, as we covered last week, they're already looking at the sign and the evidence. They're saying, this, this is Messiah. The Pharisees and scribes are saying, do it again. Show us something else. They just cannot believe what is so plain and obvious before them. And we need to be careful that we don't become like these Pharisees. We, we want God to do it again and do it again and do it again before we would just surrender to Him. And look at the evidence and let the evidence speak for itself. Verse 39 through 41, you know, Jesus responds here to the Pharisees' request for another sign. He says, But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. 
For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And indeed, a greater than Jonah is here. Jesus called the scribes and Pharisees evil and adulterous. Uh, Evil because their hearts were evil, as indicated in verse 34, and, and adulterous because they had... Really, they had neglected God, they had rejected God and their, their duty toward Him, and they yielded themselves to their own lust, their own desires for power and control, and so they were being adulterous with their relationship with God. And He told them that no sign would be given to them except for the sign of the prophet Jonah. What is the sign of the prophet Jonah? Jonah, as I'm sure uh, most of you are all aware of, okay, was called by God to go to the city of Nineveh. And when Jonah disregarded God's calling and tried to get on a ship bound for Tarshish, God sent a great storm upon said ship. And when the people on board found out that Jonah was the reason they were experiencing the storm, they had no choice but to throw him overboard. And that is when God had a great fish swallow Jonah whole. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish, it tells us, three days and three nights before the Lord had the fish vomit Jonah back onto dry land and he went to Nineveh. One thing I do want to point out, when it says three days and three nights, we need to realize that this was an idiomatic phrase. And what that is, 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 is a phrase that was part of this culture and part of uh, that people understood to be uh, it's different than what our culture is. When we think three days and three nights, we, we assume a full 72-hour period. Uh, but that's not what it means. Okay, um, Jews of that day and even Christ's day, they, they counted any part of a day as a full day. And so when it says that uh, three days and three nights, it's just speaking of three part of three days. You know, and we'll see part of one day, a full second day, and then part of a third day. Okay? Uh, we see examples of this uh, in the book of Esther, as Esther would uh, tell her people to uh, fast and pray for three days and three nights, but yet on the third day she went before the king. And so that you realize that they counted their days a little bit different. Even when we look at the crucifixion and how he was crucified on Friday, uh, and three days, three nights, three part of Friday, all day Saturday, part of Sunday, uh, he rose on the first day, the third day. Uh, after being crucified. And so this idea of three days and three nights doesn't necessarily mean three 24-hour periods. But really, the the point of the matter is that Jonah's time in the belly of the well became a type. It became a a foreshadowing of Christ. It it pictures for us beautifully the, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jonah was buried in the belly of the great fish, and then on the third day returned to dry land. Christ was crucified and buried as well, and then on the third day he rose from the grave and returned, just like Jonah. And so the, the, the prophet, excuse me, the, the sign of the prophet Jonah is that, that picture of Christ's death and resurrection. That's going to be the sign. When I die and then three days later I rise from the grave, that's going to be your sign. Okay? And that's all you're going to get. Okay? I'm not going to do any more of these things for you uh, to try and prove myself. That will be proof enough. And isn't that pretty good evidence? It's pretty good proof, right? Someone coming back to, to life after being uh, dead. and uh, that's, that's our Lord. That's our God. Jesus spoke of how the Ninevites, they will condemn this generation because they responded to Jonah's message and the people of this generation had someone greater than Jonah preaching to them. The Ninevites, they were, they were Gentile heathens. Okay? But they responded to Jonah's... Really, it was a half-hearted message at best. right? If you know the, the account of Jonah and you read through it, he kind of just kind of goes through and says, churn or burn, you know, repent, 40 days, you're going to be gone. And, and, and it wasn't heartfelt, and yet the people responded. That they, they responded, they repented, they, they put on uh, sackcloth and laid in ashes the king, exhorted all people to do so, and, and, and they will stand in judgment against the people 
of this wicked generation before Christ. This generation, God's chosen people, they had experienced the powerful teaching and preaching of the Son of God, filled with love and grace and forgiveness, and have even seen multitudes of miracles as signs of the Spirit's power upon Him, and yet they have not repented. And so we see how the Ninevites will be able to stand and say, Look, we repented at Jonah's half-hearted message, and you've got someone greater than Jonah here preaching to you and doing more incredible things and yet you're not repenting. You're not listening to it. Verse 42, he gives another example. He says, The queen of the south will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon and indeed a greater than Solomon is here. Jesus added, not only the Ninevites uh, are going to rise up and condemn this generation, but so too will the queen of the south. This, of course, is referencing uh, the queen of Sheba. The queen of Sheba, she came to Solomon. Uh, That is uh, recorded for us in the book of 1 Kings chapter 10, as well as 2 Chronicles chapter 9, that visit of the queen of Sheba to Solomon. And she, the queen of Sheba, will rise against this generation because she came from the ends of the earth, to hear of the wisdom of Solomon. And she left in complete awe of all that she saw. She was amazed. She said, even the half of it wasn't told of me, how great Solomon and his kingdom is, and his wisdom, and his wealth, and everything he had. And yet, there's a greater than Solomon that has come to this generation. He came to them. And they treat him shamefully, and they've despised him and rejected him. And so the queen of Sheba will stand against this, this generation. And the main point here in regards to why Jesus is bringing up the Ninevites and why Jesus is bringing up the queen of Sheba is the men of Nineveh and the queen of Sheba, they responded to God with much, much less evidence than what has been stacked before this generation. They didn't have as much evidence as these people did, and yet they responded. And that's his point. Interestingly, I, I like, you know, it's a good study in and of itself, and I encourage you to look at this. But in chapter 12 of the book of Matthew, Jesus uses three different greater than statements. In Each one points to a specific characteristic of who Christ is and His ministry toward us. In verse 6 of Matthew chapter 12, we didn't cover, we've covered that previously, but not today. In verse 6, Jesus declared, Yet I say to you that in this place there is one greater than the temple. And in verse 41, He stated, And indeed, a greater than Jonah is here. And then in verse 42, he testified, And indeed, a greater than Solomon is here. Well, what's with all these greater than statements? When Jesus referred to himself as one greater than the temple, it pictures for us his ministry as a priest. His priests would serve in the temple. Jesus is our great high priest, according to the order of Melchizedek. Hebrews chapter 5 verse 10 tells us, As a priest, he offers a sacrifice on our behalf to cleanse us from sin. That's what the priests would do. They'd they'd offer sacrifices for the people, and they would have their sins cleansed. Uh, And that's what the responsibility of the priest was. Jesus does that, but he doesn't offer a sacrifice of animals and, and fat like the other priest. He laid down his own life for us as a sacrifice. So that through His sacrifice, we would be made white as snow. When Jesus referred to Himself as a greater than Jonah, it pictures for us Jesus' ministry as prophet. Prophets were responsible for delivering God's Word to God's people. In John's Gospel, it tells us that Jesus was the Word. And that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we behold His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John 1 verse 14. And so Jesus not only delivered God's Word to God's people like the prophets, He was God's Word. And not just to His people, but to all nations and all people. 
And so we see his ministry as a prophet. When Jesus referred to himself as a greater than Solomon, it pictures for us Jesus' ministry as king. A king rules over a kingdom made of men. Solomon's kingdom in all of its glory and splendor will never compare to the heavenly kingdom that Jesus sits upon the throne of. Jesus is the King of kings. There is no comparison. Every knee will bow of those in heaven, of those on earth, and of those under the earth, according to Philippians chapter 2, verse 10. Uh, you know, Not just of men, but of heaven, and of things on earth, and things below the earth. All creation, all beings will bow before Jesus Christ. He is the King of kings. And it's interesting to me that as you go through the the Scriptures, you see that the offices of prophet, priest, and king, they represent three offices to which men were appointed as servants of God. As you look through the Old Testament, you read uh, of prophets and priests and kings, they will all be anointed and appointed to serve God. In these offices. And Jesus here, He is the only person in Scripture that fulfilled all three of these offices. Jesus Christ is prophet, priest, and king. And and so He is the supreme example of a servant of God. And He perfectly fulfilled each of these offices. It points to who He is, the Anointed One, the Messiah. That's what that means, right? That word Messiah or Christ means the Anointed One. Who was anointed in the Old Testament? We had prophets, priests, and kings. They were anointed to serve God. Jesus Christ is prophet, priest, and king, the Anointed One. Further evidence of who He is, the Messiah, the Anointed One. Verse 43 and 45 says this, When an unclean spirit goes out of a man, he goes through dry places, seeking rest, and finds none. Then he says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when he comes, he finds it empty, swept, and put in order. Then he goes and takes with him seven other spirits, more wicked than himself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that man is worse than the first. So shall it also be with this wicked generation. Verses 43 through 45 may seem a bit out of context. Okay, As we read it, we're kind of thinking, why is this kind of coming from left field here? But let me try and explain to you how this applies to this overarching theme of, of our text here in chapter 12. And the key to understanding these verses... Uh, excuse me. The key to understand these verses and, and what's going on is found in verse 44. Okay? And it's one word in verse 44. And that one word is empty. You see, this man was freed from his unclean spirit. And when he was cleansed, he went and he got his life cleaned up. And he got his life all in order. But one very important thing did not happen. The man did not fill the void that was left by that unclean spirit. It tells us that the unclean spirit finds his old home swept and put in order and empty. And that's the key. Because it was empty, the unclean spirit was able to return and bring other spirits along with him and make life even worse for that man than what it was uh, before he was freed. And Jesus likened this situation to the wicked generation before him. And at the end of verse 45, he says, That's so it shall be with this wicked generation. The Pharisees, they were all about reform and living clean and proper lives. They had cleaned up Israel's acts from the Old Testament. As you read through the Old Testament, man, they, they did a lot of idolatry. Okay, they, they got sucked into a lot of that kind of stuff. And the Pharisees, they cleaned house. Okay, idolatry was rampant, and now they're, they're working on that. They've got that taken care of. They're ensuring that people live properly according to their laws and their interpretation of the laws. And, and although they had rid the land of many isles, they were still empty. They had not filled their lives with a loving relationship with the Father. They tried to fill their lives with empty hopes of a man-made religion. 
And they were empty. And Jesus warned them that it was going to get worse than what it was before if they continue to walk around empty-hearted. And this fits beautifully within the text here as we understand it. Okay? Jesus is showing them that through this example that they knew, need to choose to fill their life with Christ. Okay? That just living a clean and orderly life is not enough. They must fill their heart and lives with Christ. They, they must make a decision. You know, even though Jesus specifically applied this text to the wicked generation before Him, I believe that there's still, still great application for us today. You know? Many people today think that they can just clean up their life a little and, and get things in order and that's good enough. They're, they're like this guy Jesus was speaking of. They're walking around all clean and proper, but their hearts are empty. Some people come to church thinking that they need to clean up their life a little. You know, oh, I'll go to church. That'll be good. And I'll, I'll surround myself with good people. And I'll do the church thing. And, and then our life will be great. You know, I, I need to clean myself up a little bit. Yet they don't fill themselves with the Christ. Those that do that, they fail to see the necessity of filling their life with Jesus. And in doing so, they make matters worse. I like what Warren Wearsby had to say about these verses and, and how they apply to people today. He said this, It's not enough to clean house. We must also invite in the right tenant. Mere religion or reformation will not save. There must be regeneration. The receiving of Christ into the heart. We cannot be neutral about Jesus Christ. That's what he's been talking about, right? All the evidence is here. You can't be neutral. You're either with me or you're not. Look at the evidence. It's mounting before you. Your hearts are evidence. But the words are evidence of what's in your heart. And your hearts, they're empty. You know, I, I, I believe this happens a lot more than what you would think in the church. And, and especially, I believe it happens when it comes to people who are caught in sin. They get caught in sin. Okay? Whether that be, uh, you know, you can imagine what it may be. They get caught, they get busted, and they think, okay, you know, I'm going to make things better. I've got to make life right. And I'm going to, you know, I'm going to straighten things up, and I'm going to have an accountability group, and I'm going to have this, and I'm going to have this. I'm going to put all these things in order so that I can to be better and to do better. But they never fill themselves with Christ. And what usually ends up happening is that the sin will come back. That sin that they got caught and everything got messed up with, they try and get everything in order, but they never, they never fill that void. And so that, that sin just comes back. It happens more often than what I'd even like to admit. Don't let that be you. Okay? Don't try and just clean up your life. Surrender your life and your heart to Christ completely. Verse 46 through 50, we'll finish off the chapter. He says, While he was still talking to the multitudes, behold, his mother and brothers stood outside seeking to speak with him. And then one said to him, Look, your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak with you. But he answered and said to the one who told him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And he stretched out his hand toward his disciples and he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. These last verses, they are a great end to the theme of chapter 12 of the book of Matthew. As we've been looking at this overwhelming evidence, evidence that demands a verdict. We see here Jesus, he was, while still addressing the multitudes, his mother and brothers, they came looking for him. And Jesus was informed that his family was asking for him, and he asked an odd question. He said, who is my mother, and who are my brothers? And before anybody could even guess an answer, he gives the answer. And he says the answer, he answered the question and declared that, whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. What is the will of the Father? Matthew chapter 18 Verse 14 tells us that even so it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. 
John chapter 6, verse 39 and 40 tells us that this is the will of the Father who sent me. This is Jesus speaking. That of all He has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. And this is the will of Him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in Him may have everlasting life, and I will raise Him up at the last day. God's will is that we would not perish, but that we would believe in His Son and have everlasting life. And so Jesus directs people here at the close of this chapter to do the will of the Father, to believe on Christ and not perish, to respond to the evidence that has been mounted up before them, to not be like these Pharisees and these scribes who have left their hearts empty. Respond to the gospel. Respond to Christ. Look at the evidence it's overwhelming, and it demands a verdict. What a great way to, cha- to wrap up chapter 12. The Spirit of God had been testifying of Christ by empowering Him to do the miraculous. The evidence has become overwhelming. Jesus declared, you're either with me or you're against me. And then He warned of the danger of denying the testimony of the Spirit. He explained how our words, they're only evidence of what's going on in our hearts. And he warned the Pharisees again of those that would stand and testify against them for their refusal to follow the evidence. And even warned them of the danger of having reform with an empty heart. And now he concludes it with an invitation to do the Father's will and to make a decision for Christ. To believe on Him and not to perish. It's beautiful. As I read it, when I first read it, I thought, how do all these things fit together? And then after studying, I thought, oh, Lord, you so beautifully put this all together. The evidence is just mounted there. It's evidence, and it demands a verdict. And it demanded a verdict back then, and it demands a verdict today as well. If your heart is empty, if you have not surrendered your life completely to Christ, you need to do that. You need to look at the evidence. And you need to do the will of the Father to believe on His Son. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, I do thank you for the evidence. Lord, I thank you for the proof as we we talked about your word, Lord, and your creation. It it all is, is, it's it's overwhelming. Lord, I know that we're skeptics at heart. I know that we want to say, do it again, Lord. We want to see something else. But Lord, may we respond with simple, childlike faith. And believe upon your Son. And, and Lord, I, I thank you that many here, and I hope all here, have, have made that decision. Lord, our hearts are not empty any longer. We've filled them with you. We've filled them with your word. Lord, uh, we, we just need you. And Lord, we thank you that you are more than enough. Lord, I pray, Lord, that if there's any here that have not looked at the evidence and have not come to a decision, Lord, that they would realize that a a no decision is a decision that says, no, God, I don't believe the testimony of your spirit. And they'd realize that they're not with you and that they would make that right today. Father, for those of us who have made that decision, we've looked at the evidence. Lord, may we just rejoice in it. May we rejoice knowing that we are not going to have to stand account for our idle words. We're not going to stand account for the sin in our hearts and in our lives, Lord, but you've washed us and cleansed us. Lord, you are uh, our, our prophet, priest, and king, and we just rejoice in how perfect you are. And we thank you that you love us so much. Lord, I pray your blessings would be upon the body as they go their way today. Lead and guide them. Allow us to continue just to think and meditate upon you throughout our day. We love you and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.